Well, everyone, thanks for being here, and uh, thank you to those who are uh, over at our Montrose location and those who are tuning in online. So glad that we can be together and uh, excited for this series that uh, we've been going through and we're finishing up uh, here this weekend uh, on the wilderness. And so um, it's been an interesting week. I'll give you a little bit of a flyover, um, but if you've missed any of the conversations um, along the way, or maybe this is your first week this weekend, I encourage you to hop on our app um, or on the website and kind of get the whole conversation. Uh, but what we've been doing is, uh, actually we were talking about Jesus being uh, baptized by John the Baptist and then immediately after that, uh, him going into the wilderness. So the series before this, we were talking about John the Baptist and kind of that interaction. And here we are just kind of now progressively moving through the life and the story of Jesus uh, to where he's in the wilderness and, and the Spirit leads him there. And uh, we, we've been unpacking this. The wilderness is um, a real place. Like Jesus is in kind of this arid desert. Um, but what's really fascinating about uh, the wilderness in this series is that we often talk about it, the wilderness, as uh, an experience that we go through. And so what I mean by that is often we'll describe the wilderness as a place where we're depleted or a place where we're alone or a place where we're hopeless or drained or we feel far from God or kind of like in that unknown and so uh, that's kind of been the lens that we've been uh, looking through as we've walked through uh, the story. And so the first week, we, we just talked about what the wilderness is. We kind of unpacked that idea and uh, how Jesus is going into the wilderness and what it reveals about him. Um, a, a big point we made that first week was that the wilderness actually is a place of preparation for Jesus for something greater. So like there's, there's meaning and purpose in it, but we just kind of did a 30,000 foot overview. And then last week, uh, there's this person who shows up in the wilderness who uh, is the devil. And Joe uh, was talking through that last week. Pastor Joe was walking us through kind of uh, his tactics and his schemes and uh, what it's like when uh, the devil shows up in the wilderness with Jesus and how uh, he doesn't kind of come with brute force. He, he comes with this idea. He kind of comes with this temptation to uh, get what we want in a way that kind of pushes God aside. And so uh, we covered the wilderness the first week and the devil the second week. And here I am, I'm supposed to like bring it all home. <laughs> and um, it's a lot. We've covered a lot so far uh, and a, a lot of weighty stuff. And I don't know, um, I, I was on a retreat this pack, past weekend with, uh, on our men's retreat. And uh, I think it's just been like, I, we've all felt in our own wilderness. And, and I felt that too personally. And so I kind of like was trying to get in to the passage and like, let's just study it really well and, and explain it. But I just couldn't escape. Um, I had a really hard week. <laughs> I just felt a lot of that, that pushback. Maybe you did too. I mean, it's, it's been a season as well. Um, but this was really challenging to prepare for and to think about how, uh, how do we really find Jesus in the wilderness and how do we offer hope in that and where do we land today. And so I'm excited for that. I think that uh, God does have somewhere for us to go, uh, but it's taken a lot of personal wrestling. And so uh, what we're going to do to start is we're going to read through the passage again where, where Jesus is in the wilderness in Luke 4. Uh, I encourage you to open up the app or grab one of the Bibles uh, in the chair, uh, underneath the chair right in front of you and turn to page uh, 834 or just follow along here on the screen. But we're going to read through this story again and uh, refresh ourselves or hear it for the first time. And so it begins like this. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan where he was baptized and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing at uh, that time and became very hungry. And then the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. And then Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. 
And then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you will worship me. And Jesus replied, the scripture says, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so the devil took him to Jerusalem to the highest point of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect and guard you. And they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished all of his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. And so, so hopefully this is starting to get familiar with you. You're kind of used to the narrative and all that's, that's going on here. Um, and this weekend we're going to specifically highlight like what, what is Jesus' role? Like, what's it look like for him to come through the wilderness? What's going on here? And there's an observation that I want us to make right off the bat. And um, it's a big one, and it's this, that Jesus is showing us that life with God is better and possible. It's better and it's possible. And I choose those words uh, specifically it's, uh, because I think these are things that we tend to struggle with in the wilderness or just in life, right? Like that uh, life with God is better. Is it actually better? Can God really satisfy the longings of my heart? It, what, what if I have different plans or ideas or dreams or ambitions than what God has? And it's, it's easy to doubt and wonder, is life with God better? And, and there's another part of that, too, that is it possible, right? We can just as easily get discouraged that life with God isn't actually possible, maybe because we feel like uh, he doesn't want us, or maybe God doesn't care about us, or that we have no idea how to find him. And this is a part of what Jesus is doing in the wilderness. When, when, I, when I'm in the wilderness and when you're in the wilderness, we have all sorts of questions, all sorts of questions, and many of them do not get answered. But the question that Jesus is very bent on making sure that it is answered, and it's an important one, is this, that life with God is better, and it is possible. And that comes from more than, than just what we see in that moment in the wilderness. Actually, uh, if you ever want to uh, kind of understand the like the depth of kind of each of the individual parts of the Bible. You ever get like to a place like the wilderness passage, you're like, what does this mean? Like, why is this important? Um, there's no like decoder ring. You don't have to be like a Bible nerd to figure it all out. Um, but one of the things that I think is really helpful when you're trying to understand the meaning and significance of any individual story in the Bible is to understand it in its greater context, to understand what the bigger story is. So anytime you come across a smaller story that doesn't make a ton of sense or you want to understand the depth of the meaning, push it back into the bigger story. And so I think that's actually, as Jesus is answering this question, when we push this moment back into the bigger story of what God is doing, of what's being revealed in the Bible, we begin to see uh, this question being answered, this question actually needing to be answered more clearly. And so uh, to do that, we are going to go all the way back to the front of your Bible uh, and look at the first human beings, uh, Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. And so uh, this is really fascinating for many reasons, but if you're not familiar with uh, Genesis 3 and, and Adam and Eve, let me just kind of give you the overview. Um, Adam and Eve are created by God with his very breath. And they, it's said that they are made in his likeness. They're made in the likeness of God. They're different from 
every other part of God's creation. They're different than stars and plants and animals. They are unique. They're called his image. And what God does when he creates his image is he places them in a garden. He places them in this garden that really represents this perfect environment where they can live out that calling to be like God, to co-create with him, to co-rule with him, to, to allow uh, the world to flourish in partnership with him. And they're placed into this garden to begin it all. And uh, it's, the, it's this garden scene. It's the perfect environment. And uh, what's interesting is Jesus is trying to answer a question that starts all the way back there. This is a part of the bigger story. And I want you to see what happens in that garden, what happens with Adam and Eve, that is eerily similar to what's going on in Luke 4 when Jesus is in the wilderness. So let's read through that here in the garden. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat uh, fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or, or you'll die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked and they sewed together fig leaves and made coverings for themselves. So there, there's a lot of parallels here. Like there, there's a big question being set up here, like what's going on? And actually it, the story kind of really picks back up in the wilderness with Jesus. So I wanna show you some of the parallels of what's going on here. First, very obvious, like there's the same enemy. Like Satan shows up in the garden, he shows up in the wilderness. In the garden, he's kind of described as this serpent, uh, this kind of created uh, creature that um, clearly is trying to uh, pull um, and influence Adam and Eve. And of course, in the wilderness, he's just called the devil. Um, but it's, it's this real spiritual being. We talked about it last week. And uh, he shows up in both of these scenes. It's the same enemy. Also, too, uh, not just the same enemy, but the same tactic, right? Okay, he's trying to get them to doubt God. And so the way that that shows up in um, the garden is uh, he says, did God really say? Like, God put you in a garden and told you not to eat from any of the trees? Um, the way that shows up in the wilderness is when he says, if you are the son of God. Like, really? You think you're the son of God? It begins to cast doubt into those first humans and into Jesus. Or at least that's his, his tactic. He has the same weapon. So this is what's fascinating about the devil. And we did talk about this a little bit last week, right? Like, he doesn't come at you for physical combat, the devil comes at you with an idea. He comes at you with an idea about God or yourself or the world that you're in. And it begins to fuel that doubt. He begins to create an alternative. The alternative he offers in the garden is you certainly won't die. You will not die. Don't trust what God said. 
And in the wilderness, it's when he begins to say things like, all these kingdoms belong to me and they'll be yours. Or certainly if you jump off the highest point of the temple, he'll protect you. Like, I mean, God did say he would protect you. Why don't you test him? He throws out an idea. And the last thing that I think is a parallel is that it's the same offer. That um, to get the, wrong, the right thing in the wrong way. To get the right thing in the wrong way. And so in the garden, Eve sees this fruit and sees that it is good for food. That it is pleasing to the eye. And that it is uh, desired for gaining knowledge. And then in the wilderness... It shows up by, why don't you just turn this stone into bread? You're, you're hungry. You've been fasting for 40 days. Why don't, why don't you get all the kingdoms of the world just by right here, right now? Or why don't you prove God's love and protection for you by jumping off and see what he'll do? And so um, I think this is an important one to camp on because um, it very much reflects how we view the wilderness and how we view Um, what Jesus is doing here because um, let's think back to the garden illustration, okay? God created them with hunger and he placed them in a garden with fruit trees. He placed them, he created a need in them and he placed them in a place to have that need met. They didn't need an alternative, right? He, He made them in his image. So why is the enemy saying you'll be like God if you eat this? Like they already have been called God's image. They, they don't need to be like God. They are already like God. There's nothing else to do to attain that. There's nothing else higher to set their eye on. And then, oh, it's good for wisdom. I'll, I'll have a knowledge of good and evil. Why would they need a knowledge of good and evil when they're sharing life with their creator and father, who is the author of wisdom itself? Like, why, why would they be at any lack or any need? God created these things right, to, to partner with him, to be hungry, to, uh, to be in his likeness and image. He's not, you know, trying to divert them away to a different longing. He's trying to have them satisfy that longing in a way that's alternative to God. I think the same thing's happening with Jesus, right? It's not wrong for him to eat bread. It's not, uh, actually, if he knows he's the Messiah, he knows that all kingdoms will belong to him as the rightful king, the messianic king, and that uh, even that God is going to guard him and protect him. But if Satan can begin to cast doubt on that here at the beginning, is he good? Will he protect you? Do you know that? It's the same enemy, the same tactic, the same weapon, the same offer. And so this is what's fascinating. It's the bigger story, right? These first human beings, Adam and Eve, are the archetype of all of us. This is us. This is the story of us. This is actually the question that all of us are longing to have answered, that we doubt God's heart, right? And we buy into this idea that we either can do life without him or we must do life without him, right? It's either uh, not better or it's not possible. And we try to get the good life in our own self-motivated ways. So this is the question that Jesus is interested in answering. I know that we, we have lots of questions in the wilderness, but this is one for sure that he wants to make very clear. Life with God is better, and it is possible. And when you push that back into the story of Jesus, you, you come back down from the bigger story and go back to the wilderness, this is what you find. You find that life with God doesn't depend on us being in a garden or being in the wilderness. 
It is not dependent on your location. See, if you're like me, as I've been wrestling through this all week, I'm like, oh yeah, but God, I want to like be close to you and I want to do life with you and I, I want to long for the right things and in the right ways, but like life is just so hard. <laughs> and like you, don't, like, you don't know what I'm going through and like this is all messed up and like every day, like 40 things go wrong and half of them are my fault and half of them are someone else's fault and it's just like getting to me and God, if you could just like get me out of the wilderness, then I could be close to you and then I would be completely dependent on and then like I would follow you if maybe I was like in the garden but like we just read the story. <laughs> what do human beings do in the garden? In the perfect environment, they, they still choose not to depend on God, not to draw close to him, not to do life with him. So actually, that, that's a myth that like, I kind of had to remind myself of this week is like this, I don't need a garden. What, what Jesus is doing is he's not showing up in, into a garden. He's going into the wilderness. He's going into the place of desperation. And despite where Jesus is, he proves that life with God is better and it is possible and you can even find him in the wilderness. I think this is why it's like a big deal that we understand the bigger story and what, what, why this question is so important that Jesus is trying to answer. So you remember, Jesus is fully human. One of the important things as you begin to kind of wrap your head around kind of the theology of this is uh, Jesus is fully God, he's fully man, and there's a lot of reasons why that matters, but one of the reasons that matters is because he's facing real temptation. These are the same kind of temptations and circumstances that we face. Jesus was human. He's a new version of Adam. He's getting a do-over. And he's, he's actually creating a way for us to have a do-over because back in that garden, when, when we chose to start a trajectory away from God, this is the thing that Jesus is trying to answer. This is why he's here. This is why it's placed at the beginning of his life and at the beginning of his ministry because he is here to push back against evil. He's here to push back against the enemy. He's here to push back against the tactics. He's here to push back against all those strategies and all those weapons. He's here to push back and show that there is a way. There's a way to satisfy those longings. Your heart still longs for meaning and significance. Your heart still longs for beauty and satisfaction and joy. Your heart still longs for peace and wholeness. And Jesus says, I came to answer that question. I came to make a way. And so again, um, Jesus is showing us that life with God is better and it's possible. That's, that's good news. And um, I think that would be really helpful for us right here is um, not just to think about the bigger story, but like what does Jesus do in the wilderness that makes him different? Like how does, how does he handle this time differently? What does he actually do here and why does he get a different outcome? And so uh, what, I, what I want us to see is just kind of one thing he does uh, plays out in a lot of different ways. And what Jesus does is he practices uh, dependence on his father. What Jesus did was he practiced dependence on his father. It's, it's kind of an interesting way of wording it. Uh, I kind of have a, a point behind that. Uh, but let me ask you this. If our natural inclination is to practice our independence from God, what do you think the solution is? It is to begin to practice our dependence on him. It's actually to remember and make ourselves dependent on him. And that's actually what Jesus is doing here in the wilderness. Because remember, Satan, uh, he's not going to combat you, you know, in physical combat. 
he's going to come at you with an idea. So how do you combat an idea? <laughs> Does it like matter how strong you are physically or what weapons you got? How do you combat an idea? And the way Jesus combats it is he stands firm on what is true about his father and what his father says about him. He stands in quiet confidence in what he already knows. And it allows him to navigate this wilderness differently. And so as a disciple of Jesus, if you're in the wilderness and you want to know how to follow Jesus and navigate it the way he would, you want to begin to do the kinds of things that Jesus uh, uh, did. Let me share a, a little bit of a personal example. So uh, about 12 years ago, I gave my life to Jesus. I, I decided to follow Jesus. And um, I was very enthusiastic, and I was kind of this hyperactive senior in high school. And uh, I just kind of jumped on every Christian opportunity I could find. And I was involved in my church, and there were lots of things at my school and, and different stuff like that. Um, but what I realized is all that hyperactivity uh, of doing stuff for God, it, it was actually not really changing me very much. And um, what, what I was really wrestling through is like, okay, I gave my life to Jesus. I know that I'm supposed to be different. Um, I know that these longings for meaning, significance, uh, joy, um, peace were supposed to come from him. And I was doing all the things but it didn't feel like anything was changing internally. And that kind of all came to a head. I just, I kind of burnt myself out and quite honestly became pretty, pretty cynical, uh, really toward the church because I was like, I did all your stuff, church, and like it didn't change me. Um, and so I kind of blamed the church for that and even felt a little bit uh, cynical toward, man, God, can, can you really change a guy like me? Like, why is all this still in my heart? And what uh, he began to reveal through that, as he began to humble me, he's like, well, Josh, you, you never let me change your heart. Like, you, you let me change your activity. Like, you kept busy. You showed up at all the stuff, but like, you're, like you rarely slow down and actually put your heart before me. You're, you're not really honest with me. And I was like, okay, <laughs> well, how do we do that? Because I've been, I've been trying this for a few years and haven't been uh, really getting much, many results. And so uh, I began to ask that question, God, I want to be a person who loves like Jesus, who lives like Jesus, who is changed by Jesus. How can I really place myself before you in those ways? And I was a junior in college, and I um, actually my dorm supervisor uh, challenged me with a, a couple books to read. And uh, the first one was called With, and it's actually everything we've already talked about, a part of the bigger story. Uh, and, and this book showed me that I wasn't uh, saved by God to be a better person. But what God was doing is he was trying to undo what happened in Genesis 3. He wanted communion and fellowship and partnership. He wanted to know me. And that like blew my mind. I was like, so I don't even have to do anything for that. And it was, it was like, exactly. Like you've, we've talked about having a personal relationship with God, but it just kind of felt like a cliche. I didn't know how to just be with God and not just do things for him. And so uh, that book was, was really helpful. And, th and the next book he gave me, um, was this book called The Celebration of Discipline. And uh, that did not sound like a fun title. Uh, <laughs> the Celebration of Discipline. And uh, what was really interesting about this book was it, it was about what's called the spiritual disciplines. Uh, just kind of the ways that followers of Jesus all throughout the history of the church have um, placed themselves before God. How, how they um, day by day um, spend time with God. 
And uh, what was interesting, it was this invitation into a deeper life. It, it was uh, also made like really accessible. Like the, the book was kind of written like, hey, anyone can do this. This is for everyone. It's not for like some spiritual guru. Like this is for you. But he talked about the, these two roadblocks that uh, kind of kept us back from this deeper life of, of being with God. And uh, one of those roadblocks was that we feel like the material world, the, the physical world is more real than the spiritual world, right? Like this horizontally matters more than this vertically, right? We don't believe life with God is better, right? Same thing. The second roadblock was that we don't know how to do the spiritual disciplines. Like these ancient practices like are just really kind of foreign to our culture. And so we're like, I don't know. Like, I don't know how to do it. We don't believe it's possible, right? It's the same thing. We don't believe that life with God is better, and we don't believe that life with God is possible. And so it was fascinating, um, because I actually started to find, as, as I walked through this and began to practice some of these things, that I was like, I, I was finding ways to know God. I was finding ways to interact with his, his grace. And there's just one little quote from the book that I think explains what we're going for here. And it says that the disciplines put us where God can work within us and transform us. By themselves, the spiritual disciplines do nothing. They can only get us to the place where something can be done. They are God's means of grace. So, so here's what would have been the wrong approach, was to, to approach everything in that book like a checklist. Like, here are all the things God wants me to do. And if I do all the things, out, output will be better life with God. That's not what the spiritual disciplines are. It's not a list of spiritual to-dos. In fact, spiritual disciplines aren't about doing better or about trying harder. They're placing ourselves before God in real honesty, letting him do real work on our heart. And um, I think that um, this can be really dangerous um, if, if we twist it into the wrong way. And I want to just spend a minute on that because if we only focus on the externals, if we begin to treat this as law, then one of two things will happen. We'll either become full of pride, right? We'll, we'll see ourselves as better than the other person. We'll, we'll think that, man, we, we are doing so well. Or if it's not pride, it'll be fear, and we'll be afraid of falling out of God's good graces. We'll be afraid that, that he's mad at us, that he doesn't want us. And so if we approach the spiritual disciplines only for the external, not the internal, if we turn it into law, not into grace, it actually can destroy our lives. It can pervert our idea of God and the relationship he wants to have with us. But I found that as I actually began to put my heart there, as I, as I began to experience him in some ways, and I was, I was new at this and I was messing it up a lot, but it was just cool to have ways to interact with God's grace, I began to see change happen at a heart level, not just at a willpower level, not just on an external activity level. And so this is what we look for when, when we look at Jesus in the wilderness. Like, what was he doing? There's not a magic list. The spiritual dis disciplines are the things that Jesus did while he was here on earth to practice dependence on the Father. So I want to show you some of those things that I think highlight in Jesus' time in the wilderness. The first one is that he was led by the Spirit. So the, the Spirit is a, a, a real person. It's actually the third person of God. Again, that's a, that's a big conversation, but he's real. And it's God within us. It's his presence. And so Jesus, being full of God's presence, 
is led into the wilderness. This is the interesting thing about the spirit. The spirit often is in contradiction to those desires and longings and thoughts that tend to point us away from God. And the spirit comes in and corrects those things. And the spirit begins to realign those longings and he begins to create new thoughts. And this is what's happening with Jesus. Like, I don't think Jesus is like, let's go to the the desert this weekend. Let's head out to the wilderness. Like, the Spirit leads him there. It's against kind of our natural desire because God's leading him there. And it's more than just his presence and his guiding. It's his power, too. His power to go with us into the places that God leads us. And so all all that is happening in Jesus' life. He's, He's listening to God's guidance. He's kind of pushing those ways that would point him away from God and allowing himself to be realigned because the Spirit's speaking to him. He's pointing him in different directions than his natural inclinations would lead him. Another thing we see in the wilderness is that he was fasting. And so uh, this is important because he's not just cutting carbs out for the month, right? (laughs) And uh, he's certainly not nurturing an eating disorder, all right? This This is a spiritual decision, this is, this is something that he decides to do to place himself in greater dependence on God. And so while, of course, he's hungry after 40 days of fasting, there's, there's something else that's important here, too, to notice spiritually. Um, while he may have been at his lowest point physically, he probably was at a point spiritually where he had become so reliant on the Father, he was beginning to day by day, hunger pain by hunger pain, remember the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God. This is, this is a spiritual part of the wilderness. It's not just a physical thing. Another thing we notice about Jesus is that he was in quiet prayer and solitude. Actually, actually, Jesus did this very often. It would say that he would retreat and he would go somewhere alone and he would pray. And so it's the same thing here in the wilderness, right? Like no one else is there. <laughs> There's no one else to talk to. And so he's, he's there to still his heart. He's there to hear from God. He's there to expose the false selves. He's there to uh, undo and expose the temptations of Satan. He's there and quiet to make God's voice loud. Another thing he does that we kind of see in his interaction is he was saturated in biblical truth, right? Not that he had like a Bible reading plan and he got all the way through it. Like his mind was formed by the greater story, by the heart of the Father. It it was his uh, only tool back to fight those ideas. That what he did was he he pushed back with Scripture, with, with God's heart, with his word. And even when Satan began to manipulate God's word against him and say, well, I mean, God's word also says if you are in danger, he's gonna protect you, so why don't you jump? He knows how to even combat manipulations of God's heart and his mind and his truth. And the last thing that's, that's really obvious is just that he was trusting the love of the Father, right? If, if the tactic to try to get us away from God is to doubt God, he won't do it. This is what makes Jesus different than Adam and Eve, is he actually trusts the love of the Father. When in that baptism... And, and a, a voice from heaven comes down after Jesus is baptized and he comes back up out of the water. An audible voice comes from heaven that says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Like God only audibly speaks in the Bible like four times <laughs> that everyone hears it. This is like crazy. 
And everyone hears this. And he chooses to believe the love of his father. You are loved. You are mine. And no one needs to cast doubt on this. See, I, I, I put these things up here. Um, I didn't want to give you a, a list of to-dos, right? I didn't, I didn't want to, like, walk through all the disciplines in the book. And here you go. Here's how you, like, go get close to God. Remember, these are the means by which we place our hearts before God, right? We allow his voice in. We push another message out. We begin to be still. We begin to trust. We practice dependence on God, not independence from him. I would, maybe another way to say it is that if, if you want the life that Jesus wants to offer you, you can't get that apart from his lifestyle, right? The practices, the life of Jesus is what you are looking for. So look to him. Look to him here in the wilderness. Look throughout his whole life and do the kinds of things that Jesus did to draw himself close to his father. Now, here's what I think happens when we do this, right? I think that when we practice dependence on God, we learn that he's enough. We learn that he's enough. This is what Jesus learns in the wilderness, right? When he's there in, that, in those moments and he's uh, wondering, man, I, I've been fasting for 40 days. Uh, I'm alone. There's uh, all this coming at me that's threatening me. Um, is God going to be enough? Is, is God going to show up? Because that's my big temptation in the, in the wilderness or even just to go be alone with God is like, I'm, I'm afraid he's not going to show up. And I mean, I work on staff at the church. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. Like, I don't spend all day, like, reading the Bible and praying. Like, sometimes I don't even think about God because I'm afraid. Like, I, I doubt. I doubt that he, he thinks of me, that, that a life with God is better and that it is possible. I get just as sidetracked. I get uh, just as discouraged because I'm like, he doesn't care about me. Like, it, it just sinks in so quickly. But those times where I do humble my heart, right? Get alone with him. Actually place what's really going on before him. He shows up. And he is enough. And, and it's nothing supernatural on the outside. But it's everything. And it's everything. And this is what Jesus is trying to show you. That even if you're sporadic, even if you, you go back and forth sometimes and how well you're depending on him, like, God just wants you. He wants to invite you back. And so I told you, like, this has been weird for me to navigate because, um, like, this week was rough. A lot of us are in this wilderness right now. And I was feeling like, oh, great. Like, they talked about how bad the wilderness is or how at least... Uh, weighty it is, right? And then we talked about the devil. I'm like, what do I tell you guys this weekend? <laughs> like, because I feel like what we all need is some hope. Like, what's the hope in the wilderness? Like, this is hard stuff. And as I've talked with you, and as I've talked with, like, my life group, and, and just been around, like, we are all just with these heavy burdens laying on us, and wondering, like, this, like, another thing, another thing this week? Like, another addiction? Another suicide? Another broken marriage? An another trip to the hospital? Another cancer? Like it's, it's thing after thing after thing after thing. And we're like, I, I need some hope. Because I don't even know, like, I don't know if I'm on, on day one 
we're on day 40. <laughs> like, I, I don't have any bearings right now. Here's what I think is the hope for the wilderness. I think we find hope in the wilderness because God meets us there. He meets us there. And I'll tell you what I say when I'm in the wilderness. I'm saying like, you know what? I'll reconnect with God when this is all over. <laughs> like this is just too much. And the reality of Jesus coming into the wilderness is that he wants to meet you there. He doesn't want to meet you on, just on the other side. He doesn't want to meet you at the end. He, he went into the wilderness to meet you there. Like this, this is what we have to take hope in. That Jesus endured a life of constant demand and weariness to rescue us. That he endured an undeserved and brutal death so that we might find life in his death. And he rose again to new life because he is not finished. He will restore and he is working and he has not abandoned us. And so he puts himself in the wilderness to prove that to you. He shows up. And so if you feel like you're in a wilderness right now, um, like many of us do, I think all of us do, it's okay. <laughs> I know it doesn't feel okay, but it is okay. And unfortunately, I, I can't tell you when it's gonna be over. I can't, like, from my perspective, no one can tell you on this side of eternity when this wilderness is gonna be over. And I know you might be tired, and wondering why life is this way or where God is. You might be angry. You might be anxious. You might feel strained, overwhelmed, or just flat out done. And I think you, you have to kind of prepare yourself for this because you may spend more of your life in the wilderness than in the garden. <laughs> On this side of eternity, I'm just trying to be real. I'm, I'm just trying to, to like normalize it a little bit. You might spend a lot of your life in the wilderness. And so, it is good news that Jesus shows up there. That he endured this life. He endured the wilderness. He endured persecution and the cross and death for you. But I will say this too. There's hope now in the wilderness because Jesus is there with us. But there is a new garden coming. There's a new garden coming. Like the end of the big story is that he's going to make all things new. And there'll be no more pain, and there'll be no more death, and there'll be no more tears, and there'll be no distance. There'll be no tempter. Like, we will, God will be with man, and man will be with God, and he will resurrect those who are dead, and they'll be fully restored. He'll make all things new. There'll, there'll be a new garden and so there's like really long off hope like that that never goes away because our God is good and he wins. And so we like look to that when like we're not sure how long this wilderness is gonna be on this life, like we look to eternity because it's gonna be better. And it's possible because of Jesus. And so in this series, what I think this compels us to do is it, it compels us to ask a question, right? Like, is this the time where God's drawing me back to himself? Like maybe for the first time or, or maybe again, right? Is, is God inviting me back to himself in this wilderness? I would ask you this question. 
What's keeping you from God? What, what is it for you that keeps you from God? Because Jesus came to demonstrate that whether garden or wilderness, the only thing that has to separate you from him and his love is your own heart. And so what is keeping you from God? Maybe you've begun to believe that God, life with God is not better and it is not possible. But have you practiced dependence on him? Have you placed yourself openly and vulnerably before him or has this wilderness crushed your, your spirit and your willingness or your desire to pursue him? I, I would say, go there. <laughs> don't, don't be afraid. Even in, invite someone in. Like God didn't leave you in the wilderness on your own. Like you, you showed up here this weekend to be surrounded by other people in their own wilderness. People who don't want you to walk through it alone people who do love you the way Christ loves you. So you don't have to be alone in this. And so I'd love to invite the band out and even just pray for us now and ask God, Father God, what is it, what is it that's keeping us from you? I mean, if, if you went so far as to put skin on and become a human and go to the wilderness to go to the cross, like, why can't we hear you? Why can't we find you? We, we need more than just rules and ideas, God. We, we need rescued. And so there are all sorts of wilderness stories right now that I, I don't know. And, and sometimes I don't even know what I need, God, but we ask that we would see you. I pray that you'd give us the courage to show up and, and do the things we're uncomfortable with, the things that we're not sure if it'll satisfy, we're not sure if you'll show up. And God, for those of us who are in these very long seasons of wilderness, God, and would you just give us a clear picture of eternity that you will not wait long and you are good and you will make all things new, God, and we will always aim to have our eyes fixed on you and this life and the one to come. I pray that you would help us with that and help us to move toward you in the ways we need to right now in Jesus' name, amen.